Please take your Bible and open it to Ephesians chapter 1 for one last time. And we'll consider a theological review of this chapter before we move on to chapter 2. And I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. The theme of Ephesians, as we've outlined over and over and highlighted rather over and over, is the work and wealth of God in Jesus Christ. The work of God, what he's done through the gospel, the wealth of God, what he has and demonstrates in loving condescension to give to us in Christ. Those are the, really the, the themes that continue to cycle through the book of Ephesians. Today we're going to review the first chapter. We've done a long exegetical study through that. I think something like 19 sermons to get through chapter 1. And uh, it's worth stopping and looking back and just getting some orientation points for where we are. In order to do that, the most accurately, we're going to read it again. Let me read it for you. Let me say too, just as a footnote, there is no better part of a worship service than when the Bible, the Word of God, is read. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, pay special attention to the public reading of Scripture. When I have an opportunity to teach a preaching class to our expositor seminary students, I always tell them, you are never better, and you are never more accurate, and you are never more orthodox than when you simply read the text. And so let's read. Let me read for you Ephesians chapter 1, just to put it in our ram, if if we can. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, 
do not cease to give thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, having been enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. One of the great tasks of you, for, for you, for me, of every believer is to construct and organize and collate the verses, chapters, and books of the Bible into an accurate, clear, and biblically faithful theology. In other words, things that are true about God, things that are true from God, we have to construct our theological pillars and foundation from multiple parts of the Scripture and stitch those into what we call a systematic or a biblical theology. This is why it's so important to make good decisions about the theological inputs into your life. And we all have them. Deliberate attention to the theological tributaries and drainages that are constantly flowing into your mind and into your life. That they matter. They matter a lot. The church you attend will shape your theology by definition. The friends you have will influence and shape your theology. The books you read, the authors you trust will shape your theology. The classes you take, the conferences you attend, the blogs you read, the blogs you write, the videos you watch, the social media posts you believe, all will shape what you believe about theology. All of these have intended and unintended consequences and influences on the way you think theologically. But the most important factor in how you move from your Bible to your theology is what we do in our study and in our sermon and sermonizing. How do you move from verses to a theology? How do you move from what was said to what God is saying? How do you put together what the Bible meant with what the Bible means? Now, Spoiler alert, the Bible can never mean now what it never meant originally. Which is why looking at the authorial intent of every text is so critically important. The most important factor in your theological building of your mind is how you move from your Bible to your theology, to your theological convictions. Consequently, one of the most consistent goals of expository preaching is to help trace the line from verses and words and paragraphs from Scripture to a well-constructed theology for living. Full confession, this is ever on my mind when studying for sermons. 
I'm always looking for what theology is jumping off of this page. What is true about God that God intends for us to understand and apply? What is true from God about us that dances off the pages of these texts? Several years ago, we studied the book of Romans and we took time at the end of every chapter, if you were here with us, to look back at the content of each chapter and do some theological reflection and review. I decided that would be a really good practice for us as we move through these six simple chapters in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 1 begs for this. It is, according to some scholars, the most theologically dense chapter in the Bible, if you can imagine that. And after looking at that long sentence, verses 3 to verse 14, we can see where that's easily understood. It, every word, every phrase, every prepositional construction, every verse, just stacks and stacks and stacks theological truths. This whole chapter is dense and rich and wonderful in theology. Its structure is straightforward, but as we've studied, it's, it's pretty complex and takes some attention to understand it. There's three big sections in this chapter, verses 1 and verses 2, verses 1 through 2, are, are Paul's signature and his greeting, and in that is some theological richness that we'll see in a moment. Verses 3 to 14, as I said, comply, comprise the longest sentence in the Greek New Testament, the original language that the, Bible, the New Testament was written in. In that sentence, Paul details some, not all, but some of the spiritual blessings a believer receives by being a Christian. It's an absolute catalog of the treasures that are ours in Christ. And then in verses 15 to 23, it's a record of Paul's prayer for the saints in Asia Minor, as well as his reasoning for his prayer and how he's praying. Can I say this? Anyone who masters the first chapter of Ephesians and its content has gained a true and better understanding of God and what God thinks and how God thinks. So today we're going to review and organize some thoughts from this chapter before we go into chapter two. Now let me just tell you before we get into this, we're, 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 we're not going to drill down on every theological nuance. For, for, for example, there's, there's a lot about the church, ecclesiology that's in this chapter that we're going to bump to chapters three and four because that's where it's significantly outlined and we'll certainly review that there. There's a lot about uh, uh, the believer's uh, fight against uh, the powers of darkness that we're going to mention today but won't nearly get into as we will in chapter 6. So this is a theological review, not the theological review of this. Just a reminder of the Ephesian context, they were experiencing spiritual ignorance and spiritual misunderstanding. You can see if you look into Acts 19, there were some people who had heard of the baptism of John but hadn't even heard of Jesus. Lots of confusion theologically that Paul had to iron out. Secondly, there was cosmic conflict and confusion. By that, I mean a misunderstanding about angels and Satan and the demons. Lots of superstitious things floating around. They were, Ephesians, is, Ephesus rather, is in the shadow at this time of the temple of Diana, which was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. 
most magnificent temple in the ancient world. And there was lots of, if I can say it this way, spooky stuff happening around there. Social tension and evasion, thirdly, was all over the place. The Jews and the Gentiles hated each other. And fourthly, the gospel provoked oppression and persecution. And let me just take those four observations of the Ephesian context and show you how relevant Paul's words to Ephesus are to us today. Spiritual ignorance and misunderstanding. Well, they continue to pervade the workplace today, our families, our neighborhoods, our social media interaction. Spiritual ignorance and, ignorance and misunderstanding are, are so disappointing and I constantly, we as elders constantly pray for you as, as the body of Christ here that you would not be duped or confused by bad theology typically proffered on Facebook and Twitter, to be honest. Anything and everything can show up on a social media or a blog post without any pastoral filter or pastoral care or shepherding. Make sure you're getting your primary diet from God's word personally, and that's carefully shepherded by your local church pastors and elders. Secondly, cosmic conflict and confusion. They still plague our contemporary worldviews. From what to do (laughs) with UFO footage, which I've been asked about a dozen times in the last few weeks, are are those demons, are those angels, are those good guys or bad guys? I don't know. I've never interacted with these things. I have a suspicion, but that's for another time, to how to understand the occult. It's easy to default to a speculation and opinion data source in our mind than God's authoritative word on the cosmos. Thirdly, social tension and evasion are the signature of, of the news these days. Oh, they had Jews and Gentiles. We have red and yellow, black and white. Racial and cultural bias are easy lenses through which we can understand our world. Fourth, I said gospel provoked oppression and persecution. That's becoming more pronounced than ever. And it's real and it's personal. I have pastor friends in Canada who've gone to prison because of their faithfulness to God's word and to the meeting of God's people. Right now, today, I, I keep checking my email this morning to see if there's any news. Uh, you remember our friend Joel James, who's preached in this pulpit several times, and our friend Steve Collin, who is partially trained here in our uh, Expositor Seminary, who's one of his, who's his associate pastor. They're under threat right now this morning. They're seven hours ahead of us. They were under threat that if they met, not only would they be arrested, but so would every person in the congregation taken to jail for meeting in public. The point is clear. Every issue Paul writes about in this letter to the Ephesians is relevant to us today. Life is short. Life is uncertain. Life is unfair. Life is riddled with the unexpected. For us, just as it was these Christians in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and God has given us his word for stability for hope, for meaning, and for perspective, which is why we're taking our time as we go through the book of Ephesians, which is a faithful theological and practical guide for how we live 
and how we think. So for our brief time of study today, we're going to have a review of this first chapter of Ephesians and look at six highlights that Paul has given us, six theological pillars from Ephesians chapter 1. Now, full disclosure, there are way more theological pillars in here than six. These are just six, and we're going to pick up some ones that I'm going to be glancing over in the coming chapters as we have a deeper dive into these things. Six theological pillars from Ephesians chapter 1, and again, this is just review. We spent 19 sermons getting to this point. The first is theology proper, or God the Father is a gracious giver. Now, a little uh, um, insight about what we call categories or taxonomies in, in theology. These are, these are ways that you catalog and organize theological concepts in systematic theology. Theology proper is the study of God himself. But there's a subcategory of that too. Typically, theology proper is the Godhead, but accents God the Father. And there's a reason for that. Because we have Christology, which accents God the Son, and pneumatology, which accents God the Spirit. The Trinity is, is accented, but theology proper, it can be a little bit confusing because it, it, it studies the Godhead, the Trinity, but the primary accent and focus is the Father. We've noted for a few weeks that the subject of almost every verb in Ephesians chapter 1 is God the Father. The means is God the Son. And the central introductory feature of this chapter, we discover that here in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We find out there that God is the Father of Jesus Christ. We also find out in verse 5, he predestined us to adoption, and if we're his adopted children, that makes him, drumroll, our father. It aims at his fatherhood. Just for a moment, look at the blessed sufficiency described in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, God the Father, has blessed us with, what's the next word? Some, a few, an occasional, every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, literally, or the heavenly places. God has blessed the believer, one who's come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This amounts to everything we could ever need spiritually and everything we should ever want spiritually. We see the sufficiency, if you'll back up in the greeting of verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That seems so simple to just kind of skate through and get to the good stuff. This is the good stuff. Grace and peace. Grace is undeserved, unmerited favor. That's the, the main access point of all of our spiritual blessings. We need grace from God. We need him to be kind and gracious to us. That's everything we really need is demonstrated in his expression of grace toward us. But it might not be a, a clear at first, grace to you and peace from God our Father. 
When you really boil down what shalom and irene, the Greek and Hebrew concepts of peace mean, what those, what those are describing, peace is what everyone seeks, and we seek peace by adding to our lives things that we want and discarding from our lives things we don't want. So when you put grace and peace together, it's profound sufficiency. He's given us everything we need in the gospel. He's provided for us everything we could ever want if our want is in the right perspective in the gospel. Sufficiency and satisfaction come from the Lord himself, from God our Father. Sufficiency and satisfaction but notice that this realm is important. He's done that in the heavenlies, in verse 3, or the heavenly places in Christ. This means that our true sufficiency, our true satisfaction, are found in the spiritual dimension, not the temporal and physical dimension. Regrettably, however, that's where you and I typically look for satisfaction and meaning and sufficiency is in the temporal dimension. But God says these have been granted to us in the heavenlies. They have to be experienced and grasped and believed in by faith, not by sight. One day we will have sight, but right now they're, they're granted to us by faith. Verse 3 informs us that God is the great source of sufficiency and satisfaction for our souls. When you stitch that with Verse 2, verses 2 and 3, <coughs> absolute sufficiency, and if we will seek him, complete satisfaction from God the Father. The question is, where are we looking for such sufficiency and such satisfaction? John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, all that's in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. There's the three categories we're constantly looking to try to be satisfied and to find peace and sufficiency. And they never work. God the Father, what a gracious giver. He's given us everything we need and everything we want if we'll truly look for it. Secondly, Christology. That's the study of Christ, of Jesus. And by that, looking at Ephesians 1, we find that Jesus Christ is the means of all spiritual blessings. This is tipped to us at the end of verse 3. He's given us every spiritual blessing, everything we need, everything we want in the heavenlies, things that we don't see but perceive by faith. How? In Christ. Now, we'll see later in the, in the chapter that's impossible if Jesus is dead. This, this entire chapter assumes Jesus is alive, accessible, and blessing us through God's prerogative in his work and in his way. If you count, you can see that the first chapter of Ephesians, Jesus Christ, think about this, is mentioned either by name or title. Name, Jesus, title, Christ, Lord, um, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, or even the beloved. Or by his pronoun, he, him, his. Jesus is referred to in this first chapter more than 26 times. 
26 times. That's more than one verse. And the phrase, in Christ, which we're going to see much more in the, in the book as we study it, the term in Christ occurs 12 times. Paul called the believers saints and faithful who are in Christ Jesus in verse 2. First two verses, actually. Beginning in verse 3 and then in 14, he draws out the implications of that expression by describing the new principle of our solidarity with God the Father through Jesus as adopted sons and daughters who were chosen before the foundation of the world. Paul's going to continue in this letter to anchor our minds to this reality. Jesus Christ is the integrating centrality of life for a believer. Jesus Christ is the integrating centrality for life for every believer. He's the connective tissue of life. He's not tangential to our faith. He's the object of our faith. And he can only be that way if God raised him from the dead, which this chapter tells us he did. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. All true growth as a believer is because of Christ, through Christ, and about Jesus Christ. All of our growth is anchored to him. It's very easy for us to wrongly default our, 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 our Christianity into behavior modification, into a code of ethics, into a way we act, into a social gathering that we experience once or twice a week. Those are all important, but they are because we are in Christ. They're not substitutes for Christ himself. I've done some spiritual inventory in my own life, the older I get. And I think that's the central battle in my own heart is to remember that Jesus is the focus of our faith. Not Jesus-type living. Not Jesus-type people. That's secondary and important, and God addresses that. But Jesus himself. We have a relationship with him. For this reason, verse 15, Paul says, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ which exists among you. Paul was so excited about these believers because their faith was in the person of Christ, not just in a body of truth, and truth is important, not just in a system of doctrine, and doctrine is important. Theology is important. What we believe is important. But only if it leads us to know him better. Paul will come back to that very intimately in the next chapter. Third, pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's glorious guarantee. Verse 13. In him, that's in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation... Having also believed, you were sealed in him, in Christ, with 
the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own personal possession to the praise of his glory. As Paul describes and discusses the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he wants them to know that your life as a believer is focused on the surety of a guarantee. Now, this is genius of how Paul stitches this this logic together. If he begins the whole letter by saying, God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and we know that the heavenly places are not things we can see or experience, that they're outside the world of the five senses, then you would rightly ask, how do we know? And you would be right to ask that. And Paul tells us, we know these things are true because we have a relationship with God who has sent his spirit to abide with us. This is an intimate relationship. Now, I want to say something that might sound a little bit like like circular reasoning, and, and it is. We believe the gospel and we trust the Bible because God uses his spirit in the Bible to believe the gospel and trust it. He said, well, you, you can't have it both ways. That's the way it works. We believe because God makes us and grants us the faith to believe. How do we know these things are true? Through the relationship we have with God in his spirit. Can we sneak ahead just for a moment? I know this is review, but, but think ahead. We have such an intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit that it is possible to please him and to grieve him. Look over at chapter 4, verse 30. Paul says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, we find out he was given as a pledge to seal us until the day of our redemption. Exactly a repeat of that. What kind of relationship do we have with the Holy Spirit? Well, we find out from Jesus' instruction in John 14 and John 16 some simple things. He convicts us of our sin. He gives us the logical belief to trust the gospel. He gives us the love we have for one another. We are to be looking for the evidences of the Holy Spirit in things like that, in places like that. The Holy Spirit is evident to me (laughs) because my conscience works. Sin bothers me more now than it ever has. And this is a strange thing we've talked about in, in past weeks. I feel like in some categories, I sin less than I did when I was 16 and was converted in some big ways that I can identify. And praise God for that. In other ways, I see more sin in my own heart now than I've ever seen in my life. And I can't explain to you the, the bothness of that, but they're both true. Some of you are going north and south. If you're an older believer, you understand that to be true. Praise God for the repentance that we've experienced. But we also see that he continues to work. I like how John Piper says, 
You used to see pride, now you see species of pride in your heart. All sorts of little nuances of things that you've never seen before. It's right and it's good. So he's given the Holy Spirit to us as a seal. And the way we know that the Holy Spirit abides with us is we believe the good news of the gospel. We believe the, the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the Christology that, that the book of Ephesians outlines. We believe that we are sinners in, na- in need of grace. We believe that God's word is God's word, that the Bible is God's word. Logic doesn't work as well as the Holy Spirit. I can give you logical reasons why I think the Bible is God's word. The main reason I believe that God, the Bible is God's word is God's spirit makes me believe that, helps me believe that, encourages me to believe that. And the same is true of sin. The reason that a believer sees sin is because the Holy Spirit is showing that to us. Just a little footnote on assurance of salvation. Um, I said a few weeks ago that the, the the most pervasive counseling issue I have, when you boil things down and get past the, the first or second questions, for someone who's struggling is typically attached to whether they, they really believe they're saved or not. We, we struggle with assurance. And for some people, that's a good thing because you may not be converted and this will give you an opportunity to give your life to Christ. But I think for a lot of people, struggling with assurance is hearing the Holy Spirit convict us of sin and not responding in the right way. I don't think unbelievers who don't want to be believers, be believers are overly concerned about whether they're saved or not. But people who are tortured over, am I really a son? Can I really act this way and be a son or a daughter of God? Well, that's a pretty good indication that the Holy Spirit is working in your life. So don't stay there in your lack of assurance, but believe that he's tapped you on the shoulder to get you to repent so that you can enjoy the blessings of obedience. Four, angelology. Angelology is the study of not just angels, but demons, because demons and Satan are just angels. Angels and demons are all subject to Christ's rule. We're going to see this. Uh, in two more places in the book of Ephesians. In verse 20, Paul goes back to the phrase, um, he's raised Jesus up from the dead, he's seated him with God the Father at his right hand in the heavenlies, the place that's real, but we don't see. Those heavenlies also are the realm where the demons and angels and Satan himself live and act and interact. So, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. These are specialized words, rule, arche, the leader among, among many, authority, exousia, ones who have power, dunamis, ones who have, have overwhelming exertion of influence and power, dominion, kuriotes, the Lord's of the princes and the powers of the heirs. These were familiar Jewish descriptions of angelic and demonic levels and forces. And the phrase, every name that is named, is not only in this age, but not only in this age, but also in the one to come, means everything, everyone ever created in this world and the spiritual world is now subject to Christ and will be subject to Christ in the present and the future. 
I told you, spiritual battle is going to be a significant theme in the letter as we move forward. Over in chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says, To me, the least of all saints, this grace was given to preach the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that by the manifold wisdom of God now, God might now be made known through the church, you and me, to some of these angelic and demonic beings, the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Now, now why do I keep saying rule, uh, uh, angelic and or demonic? Look at chapter 6, verse 12. He uses those words for the demonic. <clears throat> Ephesians 12, 6, excuse me, Ephesians 6, verse 12. There is no 12th chapter. Ephesians 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against rulers, same word. Against powers, dunamis, same word. Against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies or the heavenly places. So we know from the end that when he uses these words now, he, he's talking about our interaction with the demonic, satanic world for which we need guidance. Jesus' authority, according to verse 22, is above everyone and everything and every created being. He put all things in subjection under his feet. That's every angel, every demon, and Satan himself. We know that Jesus is the great leader of his cosmos. I quoted a few weeks ago Abraham Kuyper, who famously said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! And he's right. Soteriology is highlighted in Ephesians 1. That's the doctrine of salvation. And we find out that salvation is a gift of God's grace. We spent seven sermons on this, so I'm not going to belabor it. Back in chapter 1, verse 4 to 6, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. There's the doctrine of sanctification, which we'll come back to in chapter 4. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in his son, the beloved. The way Paul modifies this pre-choosing, this choosing, this predestination grammatically is dramatic. He uses six prepositional phrases to explain the meaning and implication of what it means to be predestined. In love, showing the motive of God's choosing. For adoption, that's the goal that would be sons and daughters. Through Jesus Christ, that's the means of God's adoption is through his son. To himself, that's the possessive nature of his love for his sons and daughters according to the kind intention of his will. That's to show us the why he did that. He did that because of his love for us and to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's his resulting goal. We are, as believers, trophies of what Christ has done. You can look at this another way. 
You could look at these verses and look at the believer's past, predestined, verses four to six. The blessings of present redemption, he has redeemed us and forgiven us, adopted us in this world. That's verses four and following. That's the present. And the blessings of our future, which is the fullness of the time in verse 12. Our past, our present, and our future soteriologically, according to our salvation, is secure in Christ. Elected in eternity past, adopted in the present as his sons and daughters, and one day to be glorified when all things, verse 22, will be subject to Christ himself. So much more I want to say right now, but know this, the entire chapter of chapter 2 in Ephesians is soteriology, so we'll, we'll save that for the coming weeks. And lastly, just briefly, eschatology. That's the study of end times, the future, the summing up of all things. God's plans for his son, giving him rule over everything in experience, just as he is in the heavenlies. God allows us to participate in that with him. God's plans for his son include believers. Knowing that there's an end to the world, our world, your world, will either be your greatest threat or your greatest relief. Think about that. Knowing there's an end to this whole thing, an end to life, an end to the world, will either be your greatest threat or your greatest relief. Verse 9. He made known to us the mystery previously unrevealed of his will, what he's planned out, according to his kind intention which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration. Stop right there, with a view. According to God's kind intention, he gives us a snapshot, a preview, a trailer, a movie trailer, if you will, of what's coming. Gives us a view of it. To an administration, which is the word dispensation, a, a, a time, a rule, suitable to the fullness of times, that's the ending of everything, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. We spent some time unpacking that a few weeks ago, that he has absolutely to the nth degree planned out the future of how the world is going to come to a completion and regardless of your eschatological convictions, it all ends with Christ's physical rule over his creation. I believe he's coming back soon. One day, all things will be resolved under the physical rule of King Jesus. That is the administration, the dispensation being spoken to here. When I was a younger man, I used to, I ran cross country and track in high school. I used to be in fairly good shape. 40 plus years ago. And I, I remember practicing and you'd, you know, you'd, you'd run sometimes a mile, sometimes 10 miles to practice. I remember, you know, doing road races and getting ready for those, a 5K, a 10K. I did a couple of half marathons. And I remember what it meant to, to get ready for those. And then I remember what it meant to race in those races. I can't imagine either practicing, training, or racing without knowing it was going to end. 
We have a lot of runners in our church. I've never heard one of them say, well, I'm going to get up tomorrow and I'm going I'm, I'm to go running. How far? Don't know. How long? Don't know. Just going to keep going. I mean, you, you know you can't do it all night. Nope, there's no end. Just going to keep going. There has to be an end. Every person who trains is motivated <laughs> by an ending, which is an interesting thing. We are motivated as believers by the eschaton that all things will be summed up in Christ. We have confidence and hope and security and no reason to watch the news and be worried. God has graciously shown us the end and who stands there in control and that should keep us motivated with proper perspective.